The year is 2002. Chris Dawkins and I are de-stressing in our favorite place on Howard University's campus, the Office of the Caribbean Students Association. Amid verbal reviews of the day's dancehall artists' latest offerings, Sean Paul, Elephant Man, Wayne Marshall, Wayne Wonder, Cecile, you know, Chris and I arrive at a discussion about our futures post-university. We discuss business ideas and financial goals. Jokingly, I say to him, Chris, do you want to be rich one day? In his distinct Jamaican accent, he swiftly responds, It's not an option, my youth. For as long as I have known him, this is how Chris Dawkins has governed his life. He sets definitive goals and maps out a plan. Sometimes the task seems impossible. Even he admits that at times he isn't sure how he will reach certain goals. However, he never gives up. Chris is not immune to faltering, but he makes the decision to get back on his feet and keep trying. One foot in front of the other, with his eyes trained on the ultimate purpose of whatever journey he may be on. As an entrepreneur, Chris has been an artist manager, he started online stores, a food delivery service, a concert promotion company, and he's also sold handbags, the latter proving to be one of his most lucrative ventures. Just about all his adventures in entrepreneurship have been lived while working as a consultant for some of the world's top financial entities. The Caribbean Students Association office was, for us, a place of healing, inspiration, and learning. Chris Dawkins was many times the chief healer, motivator, and teacher while holding court with as many students as the walls of the tiny office would allow. Many years have passed since we would frequent our favorite place on our college campus. However, Chris's ability to heal, motivate, and teach has only been enhanced by time. Now a motivational speaker and an author, he shares a bevy of life and business lessons. When Chris Dawkins told me that he would be rich, he was not lying. But years on, his richness has come from much more than financial gain. This is the story, thus far, of Chris Dawkins. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Chris Dawkins, welcome to Planet 30. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Christian. It's a, an honor. It's a, it, the honor's mine, my friend. <laughs> so, <laughs> tell us tell us about your journey in business. Where did it all begin for you? Boy, I want to show you, you know. Um, first of all, from the accent, I guess you can you can probably deduce by now that I'm not from the States. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica, raised in Jamaica, and my parents are both entrepreneurs. My dad's a playwright producer, and my mom, when I was in high school, she had a um, a bridal registry and a gift basket store. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, how did that, where did the whole business thing come from? Uh, don't tell my teachers in high school, but... What would happen is when I was in about third form, third or fourth form, 
think it was like third form, my mom's business grew to a point where, oh yeah, she was also buying and selling um, executive clothing for women who were in the corporate world. So what she would do is she would travel to New York or Florida or wherever they had deals at the time to buy uh, goods to bring that back down to Jamaica. Long and short of it is, the weight limit for the bags was at the time, I think it was 70 pounds per bag. So she would take me out of school um, because you get two bags per person, 70 pounds. So she had 140 and I had 140. So she would, it made more economic sense to take me out of school, bring me on those trips to Florida or New York or wherever we went to get those deals. And that's where I started seeing how business worked in terms of buying low, selling high, growing a business, um, and being very creative in terms of um, marketing and getting people to want your goods. So it started from a pretty, pretty young age. So it was cheaper for her to get a plane ticket for you than to ship the stuff back to Jamaica. Yeah, yeah. So we, she, she calculated... She calculated how much it would cost if she was to, to, to ship it and the time and the opportunity cost loss for the amount of time it would take for it to get back. And she's like, you know what? I'm pulling Chris, I'm pulling Chris off of school. <laughs> so, and that's how that happened. Not only that, she had a helper. So I would help her bring the bags and, you know, I was like the gopher and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I started uh, very a very, very humble beginning. <laughs> You know what I mean? But yeah, it was it was great. It was a great learning experience and um I learned a lot about business without even knowing subconsciously. So did you did you uh attempt to start a business in high school as well? I I know that um many people start with just lollipops. <laughs> yeah, actually actually it's funny you mentioned that. I so I've always um gravitated towards and you know this because I guess you'll you'll talk to your 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 listeners and let them know how how we know each other. But um I I've always been in big into music and I've always loved entertainment in terms of bringing music, doing shows, doing parties, doing things like that. So uh promotion and that kind of thing. So when I was in high school, um in fourth form I had I had tried to get my parents to sign off um, for me having my first uh, session. They used to call it party back in the day. Right. Um, and I needed. I needed. I wasn't. T- I don't. I wasn't planning to ask them for their buying, but in order to get a liquor license, I needed somebody who was over eighteen. And at the time, <laughs> I didn't know anyone who was over eighteen years except mom and dad. Exactly. So I had to ask them for permission. And um, they said no. So uh, I had to find a, a bunch of different workarounds. And uh, eventually um, I, I got into it, but not the way I wanted to, by helping other people uh, put on their shows and, and, and just kind of seeing how everything went. So I kind of got into it through the entertainment promotion side. Um, but for me, it was just it was just fun. It just happened to make money from it, which I guess is the ideal situation. Definitely. You you mentioned that you're Jamaican. What does Jamaica mean to you? Oh, Crispin, you can't ask me that. Man. <laughs> what does Jamaica mean to me? Um, you know, first of all, I I think that um, Jamaica is a very special place uh, for a country to have 
what, 2.6 million people and have such a cultural impact on the world, the fastest sprinters, um, reggae music, um, people like Marcus Garvey, like we've touched, we've touched so many people across the world with what we do and who we are. One, I just think it's a, an enchanted place. It's just, it's an amazing place. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think, um, through the, through the hardship, through the struggle, always being able to find a smile. Um, the people find a way to enjoy themselves, um, even amongst the po- the poverty and the hardship. And that is something that is very admirable. They also have to get very creative in living day to day. And that's something that you you really admire. And you get very creative in terms of finding ways to get things done without having everything that you need. I think the people are ingenious. I think we are special. And um, I, I'm, I wouldn't want to be from, from anywhere else on the planet. I, I just, I love the place. It's beautiful. The people are beautiful. Um, I, I can I can go on and on. I, I, it's heaven to me. I try to get there three times a year. <laughs> yes, because there's something about you know, Jamaica and Jamaicans, the, the quote-unquote hustle mentality, because even its cultural impact is felt. You know, people always say, you know, people make jokes in the rest of the Caribbean. You, you have five jobs, what are you, Jamaican? You know, this was even portrayed on In Living Color back in the 90s, the Headleys. So, you know, the Jamaican work ethic is, is, is known worldwide. And I'm sure that, that that had an impact, just the entire culture would have had an impact on your um, ambitions. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, yes, I would definitely say that um, when a Jamaican leaves his country, or I guess, you know, many Caribbean people can relate to this, or international people who travel abroad, but it's just that thing with Jamaicans, like, you don't want to get the opportunity to go somewhere or do something and not make the most of it. That's why you hear these stories about these you know, so many Jamaicans having so many different jobs and doing all that they can and, you know, just to try to make ends meet and be able to get back home or be able to live the kind of life that they want to. They're very ambitious people. We are very ambitious people and we work really hard to get to where we want to. And we have very high goals. We have very high standards. And, um, you know, it's just just to see people go after it and start to accomplish it and start to share it. Um, it's something I can definitely say I'm, I'm proud of my people for doing. Awesome. Yeah. Who were some of the people that uh, you looked up to um, business-wise when you were growing up? I mean, other than your parents. Um, you know, it's, it, this is gonna, this is probably going to to, to shock you, Crispin. But there's like the, the first mogul or entrepreneur I looked up to outside of my parents was a gentleman by the name of Gordon Butch Stewart. Now, I'm mm. not sure if you are familiar with that name. Yes, of course. But, but Butch Stewart is, um, he was, or not was, he is the um, chairman of um, the Sandals Group, which is a hotel chain. And because of him, um, my ambition was actually to become a hotelier. I wanted to go into hotel management because 
I just saw what he did and I saw his life and I was just like, wow, that's a great life. I want that. So I was like, I want to get into hotels. Um, so Butch Stewart, Gordon Butch Stewart was uh, one of them. Um, I also admire Douglas Arrain. Douglas Arrain is the, uh, he was the CEO of Grace, uh, Grace Foods, which is a, a Jamaican brand that is, uh, ships internationally. They have, uh, Everything from ketchup to corned beef to spices to, um, you know, mackerel to whatever. You can find them on almost uh, every single one of your um, ethnic aisles, right? <laughs> so um, they're all over the world. And Douglas Arreen was the one who uh, helped get them there. So I, I really admired him. Yes, he was more of a, he's a CEO for a company. But um, he 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 ran it like he it was his company. It was a as a, as the entrepreneur of that company. Hard to explain, but entrepreneur. His style and his yeah his 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 the way he did things was just very admirable, and the way he carried himself. Um, it was just a really it was just a great uh, mentor. So I would say those two when I was really young stuck out. Got it. Now your dad, as you mentioned, is a successful playwright and producer. Uh, what yes. impact did the arts have on your life? Um, well, my dad has been doing plays since 1979. Ooh. And that's the year I was born. So I have literally grown up uh, in theater or with rehearsals happening, always having rehearsals to go check my dad at late at night or um, having, you know, at the time, Charles Hyatt, Leonie Forbes um, coming over for dinner. Those are um, very renowned actors in Jamaica back in the day up to today um even now we still have we're still surrounded by people who you see in you know movies like Top Shot and all of the Jamaican movies Sprint and all of these movies you have out there right now from Jamaica um they've either worked with my dad or uh we've we've worked with them in some way shape or form and I say we because uh, my dad really involved both myself and my sister in a lot of the uh grunt grunt work when we were younger and then later on i started helping him with his um like international marketing a global branding and uh, getting shows abroad so um it's been a huge part of my life and i don't even know what it would be like if i went through a year without watching one of my dad's plays or being a part of uh, the whole production and promotion of it so i've done it all my entire life right my entire so definitely music and theater had an impact somewhere, uh, you know, uh, even even within business, you'd say. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. Understood. So you leave high school and you and by this time you're 18 years old and you are convinced that a career in business is for you. And so then you decide to go to university? All right, so here's the thing, right? It didn't quite go like that. First of all, um, you mentioned my high school. I have to give them a big shout out. Uh, Wilma's, Wilma's, the whole Wilma's family, Wilma's prep, Wilma's boys, Wilma's girls. Um, my school is, is the best school in Jamaica. I know people may probably make comments about that, but I said it and I, I will stand by it. Right? So Wilma's <laughs> you, 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 you also have some famous alumni from that school. 
Yeah, we, we do, actually. Um, we have uh, Edward Siago, who is a former prime minister. Um, we have, um, from music, we have Sean Paul. Uh, we have Wayne Marshall. Uh, we have, it's, it's quite a number of people. I don't want to start name dropping and going crazy, and, you know, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, we, we do have a lot of um, Chris Dawkins. Oh, and Douglas Arrain. <laughs> Remember the CEO of Grace? Right. Yeah, he also went there too. So anyway, let me not, as I say, I could keep going on with this. Don't get me into my high school, man. I love, I love that place. We must big up. <laughs> anyway, um, so after fifth form, to be honest with you, Crispin, I wasn't the best student. I got really bored with, um, I was really bored with school a lot of the time, which is why I started trying to throw parties and trying to do other things to kind of, you know, make the days go by a lot better or have, have more fun or, you know, trying to do something that interests me. Um, and so by the end of fifth form, my dad gave me an option. He said, well, first of all, he said to me, Chris, you can go to any university you want to in the world. You can go to any university you want to in the world, where you want to go. I said to him, yeah, dad, um, about that whole university thing, I I think I'm going to, I think I want to work for a while. He's like, what? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yeah, I, I want to work. I want to see what it is like out there, like just to to get a taste of, of what's out there, you know, working on it. He's like, you sure? I go, yeah. And one thing with my dad, both my parents are very okay with, they kind of knew that once I made up my mind, I made a decision on something, I kind of, I wanted to do that. So whatever they tried to do, they weren't going to be able to sway me. So he just kind of went along with it. He helped, he helped me get my first job. And the first job, I mean, outside of helping my mom with her business and everything, was at an insurance company. And I started when I was actually 17. I was the youngest person at the company, ICWI. I was the youngest person at the company, and I didn't turn 18 for a few months, so they couldn't even tax me legally. Wow. So they weren't. <laughs> so, so they didn't know how to handle the fact that I was there because they had to do every different things for their books and everything just to have me there so they could pay me. Um, and I learned a lot there about customers, customer service, and I kind of moved around. I moved up the ranks pretty quickly. And um, before long, I was, you know, I had my own, it felt like my own team. Um, that was, uh, that was a new, it was a new team. It's called telemarketing, where we actually called people. Um, Big technology. Is, yeah, back in, <laughs> back in 1995 was like, you're calling people, they don't have to physically come in to, to renew. Yeah, that was like a big deal. So I was on the cutting edge of technology and insurance at that time. So I did that for a few years and, um, yeah, I realized that the money that I was making wasn't going to buy me a car. It wasn't going to, um, buy me a house and it wasn't going to have me living the life that I wanted. So I went back to my dad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, three years. I think I'm good. Um, let's let's do this whole college thing. And he says to me, Chris, you know, I wish you had taken me up on the offer uh, when you did, because um, you know the truth of the matter is, the college fund that I had saved for you and your sister, it's all been depleted. We had gone through some. It was a tough time in the country, and um, we had gone through a bunch of bad business decisions and things had changed so our 
the assets had all gone or most of it had gone. So my dad was like, well, your mom works at the University of Technology. And if you go there, which is in Jamaica, you could get a free education. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to stay in Jamaica. I want to go to the States. So he said, well, you can go to the States. I'm just, you know, not going to pay for it. So you'll have to figure that out. So I looked at my, um, I looked at how much I was making and I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to get to the States, I need to figure out a way to quickly make enough money to pay for that first semester or a year of, of college, which is what they were asking for at the time as an international. You have to show that you had a year worth of your um, tuition and your room and board to stay there, which Chris right. I'm sure the, you the know, bank the bank right? statement. Yeah, you have to have a bank statement with that. So um, what I did was I I applied for an, uh, a special visa, a work and travel visa. I don't remember what the visa was called, but I did it through a program called Joist. And what it did was it allowed me to go to England because I needed to go somewhere that had a strong dollar. And at the time, the pound was, of course, stronger than the U.S. still is. Um, so I came to, to, to England and I worked, <clears throat> I was able to get a job quickly and I worked in a cinema at the time it was in Edmonton and it was called UCI cinemas back in the day. It was like 1998, 1999. Um, and I worked three shifts from 7.30 in the morning to three in the morning for like four months. So I did that, and I was able to save enough for my first semester. Um, actually, I had applied to several different schools because I was forced to, um, but I only wanted to go to one, which is Howard University. So I applied to them. I had gotten my acceptance letters from the other schools, but I thought to myself, you know what, maybe I'll just stay in England because Howard hasn't written me yet and school starts in three weeks so there's no way and then before it felt like before i finished that thought my mom called me and said chris you're accepted to howard and i just packed up rushed to the embassy in jamaica from london got my got my uh, f1 visa and went in and and had enough for my first semester at at howard so that's how i that's how i was able to to get there so why why um why not stay in England if you were in the system as a worker and everything else? What was the uh, what what was the allure of the states or even Howard? Well, you know, the the first of all, everyone knows that you know at least then that America's land of opportunity. Here. You know, the roads were paved with gold and et cetera, et cetera. You know the whole trip. Yes. So there was there was that piece, but I had traveled to the states a lot by that time, and I liked it. And I thought that I saw people going and coming back successful and I kind of liked what I saw people achieving while going there. I'm not saying that people aren't going to England and coming back with, you know, showing, you know, progress. But there were few of, I was seeing fewer people from England. So I, it was just easier to relate to the people from the States. Plus we were watching American TV. We had satellite dishes, cable, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just kind of easier to to understand the culture and kind of move into it. I was listening to a lot of to hip hop and R and B and stuff like that. So I was kind of felt more uh, intertwined with that culture. Plus, when I went to the UK, I wasn't really interested in having a minimum wage job. I mean, I got paid five pounds fifty an hour, and 
the goal was only to save enough to get to the States, to get my education so I could change that. Because that, that whole, I already tried the whole working without an education thing. And I was like, you know what? That's probably not going to work for me. So let me try the education route. So mm. that is one of the reasons why I went there. And the place I used to travel to a lot was Maryland. And um, when I was in Maryland visiting my cousins and my, my uncles, they would always talk about Howard. And they actually took me to the campus when I was really young um, a couple times. And that was really the only place I wanted to go because of the history and because of who I knew who went there and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, yeah. So Howard, Howard was sort of um, ingrained in you <laughs> from a young age. Absolutely. It was ingrained in me and um, I'm extremely happy I went there. So tell us about your experience at Howard and how it helped you career-wise in terms of furthering your goals in business. Okay, well, um, <laughs> well, first of all, I, I went over to Howard with only one semester worth of uh, of money in the bank, <laughs> right? I was able to, to get there, but um, I needed to figure out pretty quickly how I was going to sustain myself while I was there. Um, so um, when I when I went over. When I went over originally, initially, I was staying with my uncles and aunts and my uncle, my aunt, and my cousins. And that didn't work out exactly how I was expecting. So I ended up not having a place to stay um, after my first semester. So I was semi-homeless, not semi. I, I guess I could have stayed there, but I just the conditions were just not ideal for me to, to, to get to my full potential. So um, I left... And I basically was going to to college. I had my um. I would travel to. I would have a suitcase with me all the time because I would have all my belongings with me, and I would find a place to hide them. Um, uh, and I would sleep in the um. I would sleep in engine. That by the way, big up to all engineers. You guys study hard because. You were the only ones who were always in your buildings <laughs> studying <laughs> all throughout the night. And I know that because I used to sneak in there and I used to try to to to, to sleep there. The problem is you guys are all also really loud. So it was hard to get any sleep while I was in the engineering department. So I needed to find somewhere else to, to sleep because I didn't have anywhere else to stay. So I ended up going to the school of business and what they would do is they would close the building. I think 7 p.m., they would lock the building. And what I would do is I'd go in, like, really close to 7 and just say, oh, I need to use a bathroom or something. And the security would let me in because I went to – I was in the school of business. So um, they would let me in because they knew who I was. And then they would just forget I was there, and I would just go in one of the classrooms and fall asleep. And that was going fine for a while. Um, and then what I would do is I would get up early in the morning, go to bird gym, have a shower, have my suitcase, get my clothes, and then go to class. That's how I did it. I didn't have enough money for books, so I would go to the library, see people in the library who had the same books I needed, and when they weren't studying that, I would just sit with them, study, and and get that done. So, so where, anyway, did, where did you uh, keep your luggage? So I, uh, in all different places. So anywhere I could hide it. Sometimes it was in... Um, uh, class classrooms that weren't being used. Sometimes it was in. Sometimes I had somebody who had a 
was renting a room in a house. I'd ask them to hold it for me. Um, you know, it, it was it just depended on <laughs> it just depended on the day and what I had access to on that day. So it was all over the place. So between rooms at school somewhere, sometimes I left it in somebody's trunk in the car. It just depended. Yeah. But at that yeah. time, what what kept you? I don't want to use the word sane, but what kept you strong and um, and focused? Because it's hard to focus when you don't have a place to live. Why, Crispin, you carry me right back there, man. And I can actually, I can actually remember the days when, you know, I'd cry myself to sleep, saying to myself, "Really, I left Jamaica for this, you know? Mm. And look how hard I worked to get here." And I kept thinking I could have gone and I could have gotten my education for free and da 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 da, and my life was good. And look what I've done to myself. But I think what really kept me going, I kept my focus, was there were some people who didn't want me to succeed. There were some people who didn't think I was smart enough to be in college. There were some people who basically considered me a failure before I had a chance to start. And it was me proving them right that was my driving force to go on a totally opposite path. I, it was my fear of failure and them saying, hmm, you know, I told you so. You're not smart enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. Um, and also to remember, my, my dad gave me the option, my parents gave me the option to go to school there for free in Jamaica. And I I opted, I chose to not do take that route, route. So it was all on me. And I was like, well, this was my first major decision in for adulthood and my path for the future. And I just didn't want to fail. And all I could see is people laughing at me and people saying, you you are where you deserve to be if I didn't make it, you know? So I used that as my driving force and the fact that I, you know, wasn't really gelling with the family I was supposed to be with at the time. We're good, by the way, no. Um, if, if anyone is asking, big ups to the family. <laughs> but um, at the time, it was it was really rough. Um, but I just didn't want to fail. That's what kept me focused. That's every time, every time I felt like I couldn't study anymore, or I didn't know where I was going to stay, or I couldn't believe I was in that situation. I'd say, yeah, but what if I? What if I get this degree though? Like, what if through all of this I make it? And what what is it going to look like? What is it going to feel like if I have to go back to Jamaica with nothing? So that's that's kind of how I did it. It's probably not the, the most encouraging way to look at things, but I basically looked at all the negativity and had it feed me to get positive out of it. It was my fuel, and when you're in a situation like that, if you can feed off of negativity to get positive, you never run out of gas. Indeed. indeed. So I, was always, I was always full time. I always had a full time. So... You're at Howard University. You went through the first semester, first year of hardship. But then you begin to blossom. And yeah. <laughs> and things start to change. Yeah. And Chris Dawkins becomes a promoter, president of one of the largest organizations on <laughs> campus. I'm sorry, the largest organization on campus. <laughs> What, what, um, when, at what moment did you feel that shift? Wow. Um, so 
that's so loaded. Um, well, first and foremost, after getting a little bit more settled after the first semester, what I didn't tell you is because I only had enough money for one semester, I had to figure out a way to pay for the following semester or else I would have still had the same fate even if I had passed my exams. I would have still had to go home because I wouldn't have been able to pay for my tuition, which means I couldn't stay, my visa would be revoked and I'd have to go back, right? So there's all of that. But, so basically, I had to figure out what I needed to do to stay and to stay, I had to get like a 3.6 GPA to get a, a special scholarship to help me to get here. When I figured that out, I basically had a 4.0 for three and a half years. So I didn't have any issues in terms of getting scholarships and being offered jobs and all of that. So that was that was that was good. Um, after the first semester, so I could I felt like I could breathe a little bit because I got a 4.0 the first semester. Money start they started giving me money to put towards school, um, and then I was coming close to the summer where I'd be able to work. So I was feeling a lot better. I was feeling a lot more comfortable. But as you know, Crispin, with your own experience, being an international student is, you know, when you just get there, it's a huge culture shock. And sometimes it can really throw you off of your game. And I was already thrown off of my game, the fact that I was having issues at home and not having a place to stay. I compounded with the fact that I would say something in class and people would laugh at me because they'd never heard my accent before as a freshman, right? So there was all of that I was I was kind of dealing with. But you find that um, I had this, there was this organization on campus called CSA, the Caribbean Students Association. And it was literally the only place that I felt like I could go to. And um, I felt solace. I felt like I was home. I felt like, you know, these people understood me. I felt like I belonged. And when I was, after my first year, and really getting to know the people of CSA, the people who are in CSA and feeling like a part of the community. I started coming into my own, coming out of my shell. Um, and, um, you know, slowly but surely, I said to myself, you know what? One of these days, I want to be, I want to run this organization to help people who are in the same situation I was in. And that was my, my push to get into the CSA. Um, I was always driven to get good grades because if I didn't, I would have gone back home. It's as simple as that. Get an A or go back to Jamaica. That was it. It was easy. Um, but then I needed to find ways to figure out how to um, how to fit in, how to, to make life less stressful while I was there because it was very, very, very difficult. Mm. But <clears throat> after that first year, getting my job, getting more involved in the CSA, um, um, starting to win awards, get recognition. After my first year, I got um, Goldman Sachs. I got an offer from Goldman Sachs to work for them for um, a summer internship. Goldman Sachs is a uh, investment company um, that was based in New York at the time, um, where they were offering the job. And um, things just started. Things just started happening for me because I was I was working so hard, getting the results, and also contributing to the community as well. I had the time. I didn't have any home to go to, so it was kind of easy. I was always there, so yeah. yeah. So it it so it seems like CSA and um, sort of cradled you and kept you um, together mentally. How going forward from university, though, just in, in in general, in terms of business, how important is good mental health as someone in business? 
Yeah, well, I think mental health, especially in the black community, is is almost pushed to the side. It's almost like when people talk about mental health or um, seeing a psychologist or somebody to help you in that area, uh, people look at you crazy, like, what are you talking about? You know, it's there's like a, this taboo around it. Um, it is extremely important to have your mental faculties uh, with you and to being together to be able to accomplish any goal. There's so many external forces that hit you from different aspects that you have to be able to deal with, but you can only do it if you have a sound mind. And it's having a sound mind sounds simple, <laughs> but it really isn't. There's so many different aspects of your life that you always have to be constantly looking into, constantly building, constantly reinforcing to be able to get the kind of outcomes that you need or that you want in your life. So I really do think that mental stability is extremely important, not only in business, but just being able to be a functioning human being capable of love and care and and and, and giving and and, and 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 being able to meld into the society and you know, just being a, a, a great contributor to society. I mean, it's important and it's not it's not seen as important enough in my eyes in the African American in the black community, in my in my humble opinion. But I have a great respect for it. Mm, definitely, definitely. Now you leave Howard University and you enter the big wide world of corporate America. Tell us about your yeah. experience when upon entering corporate America. Well, um, Firstly, it was to, to graduate from Howard University. I was I was one of the top in my class. I mean, I had to had to be because I, that was the only way I was going to get scholarships. Um, um, I was able to secure a job at one of the largest investment companies in the world. I don't think I don't know. Can I call, can I say who it was, Christian? Can I say who it was? I did, by all means. All right, so SCI Investments. That was the first company I worked for. They're the largest. Um, retirement they had the largest retirement business in the world at the time um so i got drafted to to, to them and i was doing um I was, i've always been in like finance wealth management and doing lead generation acquisition so i started out doing a lot of technology stuff for them and i went to i got a lot of experience doing that but then as a young person they stick you in this technology you must know about websites you must know about blogs you must know about this and that so we want to get you on that side the marketing side but one day um one of the advisors went they were missing like they were supposed to be at an event and then they needed some bodies to go to to fill in at an event right so uh, i was chosen <laughs> to go down there and send a new guy send a new guy right so I went down there. They reluctantly sent me down there. There was literally nobody else to ask. And I was like, hey, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they sent me in. And then when I went down there, um, I was I was actually having conversations with clients. And these clients had 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 million dollars. And my, like the bosses, the, 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 my, the people who I worked with, they were like, how is this guy so comfortable speaking to like multimillionaires and whatever, whatever. So I did so well in that one sitting that they pulled me from tech um, and had me 
do like client relations under like a sales rep. So they realized that I was good with people and I was able to have conversations with them um, and get extract from them what they wanted. And I could also influence behavior. So I started doing that. And that's kind of where I just kind of stayed in that lane. So my, my lane has always been in lead generation, marketing lead generation, acquisition and behavioral change. So um, started at SEI, then I, um, I did a stint in healthcare for a while. Then I went to BlackRock, then Merrill Lynch, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's kind of what my journey has been in corporate. So it's been it's been an interesting ride. Interesting enough. And so, other than the, the corporate world, you continued your entrepreneurial side and you had a few ventures. Tell us about some of them. Oh man, some of them were epic fails, Christine. You sure you want to carry on? Well, that. Of course, because even with failure, there are lessons. So, yeah. we'd like to hear some. Well, let me start off with some of the. Let me start off with some of the first. Um, I skipped out on this, but in college, I started myself and a partner, a friend of mine, Dwayne Livermore. We started a company called Dunder Place. Dunder Place was an entertainment company, and we specialized in uh, promoting shows for people and um, helping them to build websites and doing logos and um, doing compilations for music and selling them and all of that. So, um, that basically helped me uh, get back into the whole entrepreneurial spirit and uh, kept me in entertainment, which is what you know I really loved at the time. So um, uh, that's that was very successful. And to be honest with you, if I had stayed in DC and not gone to SEI, I would have probably still been in that arena because it was making me a lot, a lot of money. It was actually making me more money than my first year at SEI. So. Um, uh, that was a tough decision to make, to pull away from that. Um, anyway, after that, I would say that I started a, don't laugh, don't laugh, Christian. But during the, um, during the recession, when everybody lost their jobs, uh, I did a couple things. Um, the first one I did was, because I didn't want to use the little money that I had saved, um, I went into other people's closets, took out clothes that was used, slightly used. That I, I would call myself a, I'd basically be clearing out people's closets for them and their garages. So I would take things out that were slightly used, but people would still want. Um, and I would post them on eBay and I would start buying and selling. And that was going really well. I would literally start getting things. I'd get designer jeans, shirts, shoes, uh, handbags, people are even giving me like deep freeze fridges, freezers, stuff like that. Um, and I was doing that for a while, but then I realized that the bags were selling really, really well, handbags. So I started buying a bunch of handbags and I was only doing handbags and I was making hand over fist. It was going really well. And then um, my supplier uh, disappeared and hence my supply disappeared. Which, um, which didn't I couldn't proceed in that any longer. Anyway, I had gotten another job and then I was able to to to, to get through that. So th- that was that was those were a couple of ventures. The first venture was called um, uh, So Friggin' Cheap <laughs> on eBay. 
so friggin' cheap. Those are the ones that I would get from people's closets um, and then sell them. And the second business was called Sophisticated Sacks. So that was a handbag business. So did that for a while and that went okay. Um, but then started working again. And then later on, um, I started a, um, there was an issue where people were having, they didn't have Jamaican, where I was, they didn't have a lot of Jamaican food delivery services. So I created a, a food delivery service for Jamaican food. Um, so try that. And, um, yeah, mm. it, it, it didn't really, it didn't really work, but, um, uh, it was, it was good experience. I was able to, to learn a lot from it. Um, so you, yeah, that's. You even dabbled was, in music a little bit, if I remember. Yes. Oh yeah. Christian, I forgot that piece, right? Yeah. I, um, also started to manage artists. So because of my affiliation with entertainment and doing the shows and promotion, um, it was kind of a natural, it was an easy, um, move over to the art management. So I was managing artists and, um, that was going okay for a while until I started organizing shows for artists that didn't show up and they started putting my name. Um, I, I got, I got abused. My name got abused, uh, because I wasn't able to get my artists on shows. He, he would just go missing or, yeah, and I realized that, you know, dealing with artists is very, very difficult. So, you know, if that's something I would want to continue doing. So I kind of I pulled out to that. It, ha- um, it happens. It happens. Yeah, it, oh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It so, happens. Yeah, that, was, that was a learning experience for me, and that was very, very tough. That was very tough. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I kind of pulled out that. But the love for music and, and the process and, and the entertainment industry has always been there, and it will always be there. But that particular situation just did not work for me. You've uh, always been a great communicator. Um, tell us about the importance of... Well, there's a two-part question. Um, the impact that Toastmasters has had on you uh, as a communicator, and then B, how important is communication in business? Yeah, so first and foremost, I think people underestimate how far you can go with just being able to string some words together in an eloquent way. Indeed. Being articulate, being articulate, and being able to get your points across—you're <laughs> not many people can do that well, right? So we, there is a there is an organization that many of you have probably heard of, um, and if not, I think you should check it out. It's called Toastmasters. Um, They—it's basically a—it's a really great environment to explore your skill level when it comes to speaking. Um, you you build it in every in every single class that you go to or every session that you go to every time you're a guest you learn something new and being in in that environment just makes you better every single time. No, I don't proclaim to be the best speaker or the best communicator, but I can tell you that going to Toastmasters has made me a lot better than I was, and I would encourage anyone who hasn't gone to Toastmasters or hasn't been practicing to get better at bring, making a point, bringing their point across, uh, it's definitely something you want to work on because in business, 
it is everything. Communication is everything. Written, mm-hmm. verbal, even body language. Everything counts for those big deals, being in certain rooms. People make decisions based on very little things, some of the littlest things. And, you know, if you if you mispronounce a word or if you, I mean, it just says a lot about you. It's just a really great way once you have, once you have control, if you, you, you have your, your, you have control, you feel like you've, you have a mastery of English language and you have the ability to, to, to get your points across. It will definitely take you places. I guarantee it. And it is critical. It is a critical skill. Which, which CEO or, or, which CEO or business owner or leader you, that you know who doesn't speak? <laughs> like, you have to. There's no way of getting around it. So you might as well be good at it. Or the best you can be at it. This is true. This is true. Now, you you touched on lessons during your journey. But if you were to take away, say, two, maximum three lessons that you've learned in business overall, like what are the the three key things um, that you would communicate to an up-and-coming entrepreneur uh, from your experience? From my experience, one of the biggest things I would say is that... um, in all, most people fail. That's the first thing to know off the bat. Most people fail at whatever it is that you plan to do. Most people fail. The, the one of the biggest things I would tell an entrepreneur right now is that one, you have to know more about the industry. Your Whatever it is that you're doing, you have to know more about that thing than all of your competitors. You have to know everything about it, right? The only people who are making money in their in their field or in their area are the people who are best at it. You know, no matter how the recession hitting or how people don't have any money, when it's the best people will buy it, right? So matter like for example, let's look at Air Jordans, right? No matter how poor you are Back in the day, you know, there are certain people who didn't do anything to get the Air Jordans. Why? Because at the time it was seen as the best, right? And it, it, it translates to everything. So you want to strive to be the best. That's the first thing. And to be the best, you have to know everything, which leads to the second one. You have to be in a state of, you have to constantly be a student. You have to always be learning. You have to be learning constantly. The world is changing so much. Culture is changing so much, the way people think and do and, and relate is changing so fast. You have to always be on the ball of all of those changes. So be comfortable with change and always be learning, always be learning. And lastly, third, I would say, and this might be counterintuitive or it might be intuitive, um, be a man or woman, a person of your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it. What I'm realizing in business now is that many people claim their support to, 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 to be able to do things or they say they'll do things and they just don't come through. And when you do that consistently, you lose credibility and people don't respect you. So those are the three areas I would say that I would tell them. Wonderful, wonderful advice. Now, with your experiences, if you were to go back and change anything 
anything in the Chris Do- in the Chris Dawkins saga, would you change anything? You know, Christian, I've asked myself that question a hundred times, and I've thought long and hard about this, and the answer is no, because every single misstep, every struggle, every situation has formed me to being the person I am today. So I think if anything had changed, it would have probably changed my trajectory or made me a different person. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I'm not saying I'm the best person in the world, but I'm really happy with my progress and I'm, I have a lot of inner peace based on the decisions I've made and where I am in my life. So yeah, I said, so I wouldn't want to change anything. Now you, you also have a lot of experience traveling the world. Um, yes. Both as an entrepreneur and through uh, corporate America, which, which country or uh, because you travel the United States so much, which country or city in the United States uh, has sort of impressed you the most, and and, and why? In the U.S., um, that's a tough one. So I've been to I've been to all the states except for I've been to Alaska, and I haven't been to. The U.S. Virgin Islands, but I've been everywhere else within the U.S. Uh, I've been everywhere in the continental U.S. and then outside a few places I haven't been. Um, so that's a tough one for me. The where I like, I'm, I'm going to just be a little bit general on this one. <laughs> I really like the West Coast. I like the West Coast. I like um, I like San Diego. Um, I like San Francisco. Um, I like the West Coast, right? Um, I love Hawaii a lot, um, especially um, Maui. Um, but in in terms of a place to live, um, I think Texas is great. Uh, Georgia is great. Um, opportunity. So that's a tough question, Christian. That's really tough. Why well, um, a man I who travels as much as you? <laughs> I just wanted to sort of pick your brain as to. You know what you've seen and why you and and what you've liked. Yeah, the West Coast. The West Coast. I, I find that when and when you travel as as much as I do, you realize a, a few things that are common with places that you go to. I find, generally speaking, generally speaking, um, that people who live close to water and have access to like a beach and that kind of like lifestyle. Tend, tend to be a lot more laid back. Uh, they have a lot less stress. They're easier to communicate with, easier to talk to, and the vibe is just a lot slower, right? Everything is just a little slower, and they, they can appreciate uh, life a bit more than just someone who lives um, in in the middle of Missouri, for example, in, in the middle of the country, for example, right? So, um I've, I've found that, and I also find that there's a huge difference between the Northeast and the Southeast and, um, of course, the, the Middle America. So it's, it's it's just dependent on what you like. I like the laid-back, um, you know, everyone is everyone is equal or everyone uh, can share the, uh, the people appreciate the environment. You know, uh, just less stress and less hassle. That's that's what I gravitate towards, and I find that on the West Coast, I get that um, the most. Chris, what are some of your favorite books? Oh, man. Um, well, 
I have I have a few. Um, Request money in Babylon is one of them. It helps you to manage money, have an understanding of money. Uh, Think and Grow Rich um, is definitely a classic I would recommend every single person to read. And there's one that, I don't know, I have to read almost every single year because um, I have to revisit it because it is so important. Hold on, let me th- let me think of the name. It's called the the it's called the compound effect. The compound effect. Um, yeah, the, com- the, the compound effect. Think and grow. Oh 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 yeah, and another one. Um, how to win friends and influence people. I know I should be giving you the names of the authors with these, but this is off the top of the head. I don't. Remember. I read a lot of books, and sometimes I forget the names of the authors. So, um, those are the those are the ones that I literally have to touch at least a chapter or two. Um, you know, before the end of every year. <laughs> so those are my those are my go tos. So you're saying that even though you've read them, you know, it's sort of a reference to go back and remotivate. Definitely, because you know, sometimes you would read a good book, you get a lot of great things out of it, you get, get, but you know, you don't either implement everything right away, or sometimes you forget very important uh, parts of the book. So I use them almost like study guides. Um, like a map that you have to to keep revisiting because you're in the jungle and it helps you find your way. That's how I look at those books. Those are more like, I guess, textbooks for me. They're not like just casual reading. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, Chris Dawkins, you have been an entrepreneur. You've worked in corporate America. You've had some failures, many successes. You were homeless at one point in university. You fought your way through that graduated almost at the top of your class and last year you decided to do something huge you put all those things together and put them between two covers (laughs) yeah 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 um so let me just tell you a little bit of the backstory with that so when i i just turned i turned i just turned 40 last year a few months ago and um when I was 39, I was thinking about, oh boy, a big four is coming up. What have I accomplished? What am I, what's my legacy going to be? You start asking yourself these weird questions, right? So I thought to myself, you know, I've accomplished a lot financially. Things are good. And, you know, I have stuff, but I'm thinking about legacy and what I want to leave to my kids and what I want to be remembered for. Um, and then I, I wasn't happy with what I had at that time. So what I did was I created this manuscript where I was basically um, writing to, I guess, my kids, you know, or anybody, who, friends, family, well, anybody who would read it, um, just talking about some of the struggles and what you can do to get yourself from a negative space or to a positive place. So I wrote that and I just kind of had it sitting on, right? I just kind of had it sitting on. And I went to a, I was on a trip to, I think it was Cleveland. I was in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, I, every time I'm in a city, I try to visit somebody that I know, just to, you know, kind of break monotony of being in a hotel room all the time. So I went to a friend's hotel. He wasn't really doing very well. And, um, well, he, he was in a halfway house. Um, so I went to the halfway house. I saw him, I was, I was talking to him, and, you know, based on 
how it was sounding and how it's feeling. I'm like, I said to him, you know what? I have this manuscript. I really think that some of the contents in here would help you. He was, um, he couldn't find a job. He was, he was depressed. He um, had lost almost everything he had. Um, and I said, you know, just just read the manuscript, see, see what happens for you, right? So I left him and I said, boy, I really hope, I really hope it helps him in some way, whatever, whatever. Three weeks later, I'm at my house in Atlanta, right? And um, I get a phone call. I'm on a I'm on a business call, and my phone rings. It's a guy. So he calls one time, and I couldn't answer because I was on the phone. He calls back again. I couldn't answer. He calls again. He calls again. He calls again. He calls me eight times. So after I hung up the phone on a, in front of a business meeting, I called him and I'm like, yo, dude, what is on fire? Like, what is going on? He said, Chris, I am so sorry. I am so sorry, but I just had to call. Why? Why did you have to call? What is going on? I read your book and I was able to get a job. And by the end of this month, I would have enough money to move into an apartment um, to get out of the safe house. And I just called to thank you. And let me tell you something, Kristen, that literally brought tears to my eyes. And when I saw mm. where, where he was and what he was able to accomplish based on reading the book and like putting some of those things in place, I said to myself, you know what? I don't know, man. I, I feel like I feel like everybody should have a copy of this. So what I did was I took the manuscript and I literally sent a blast out to all my friends, my family, and I told them, share it with anyone you want. Just share it. Just just give it to anyone. And I, I was I just told them that I'm confident that especially if you're in a place that you need um, a push, you need drive, you need focus, you need direction, and you need some sort of pathway to follow, this is the book. So I sent it out and thought nothing of it. I started getting emails and texts from the people who I sent it to. Chris, this is great, this is great, this is great. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then people started saying, Chris, you know what? You really should, you really should like publish this book. Like you really should get it out there. I'm like, no, but I'm giving it away for free. I don't, this is not a, this wasn't a thing. I was just, I was just helping people. They're like, yeah, but it was written that way. So people are going to benefit from it. So I literally got like, I don't know, 20, 30 calls in the space of three, four days saying the same thing. You should sell it. You should sell it. You should sell it. You should sell it. So I figured out how to self-publish. And um, I published a book. It's called Unlock Your Greatness. Um, and it, it has a course that goes along with it called From Fear to Fire. Um, so I put it out there. and um, Tell us a bit about the course. Well, the course is a 10-step program that helps you to um, get your life... It's, it's really geared towards people who feel like their life is not where they want to be or they feel like, you know, the wheels are spinning on the car, but the car isn't moving forward, right? The car being their life. Um, people who want for more know they can do more, but just not just not taking that step. So whether you're depressed or you're over the moon, but you just feel like there's something that's missing, this will help you find that thing and, and get you there. 
and it shows you specifically how to do that Wonderful. in a step-by-step process. Um, it's a build-on course. So what you need to do is, um, for each chapter, you need to master each step. It's, it's, it's very simple in terms of how it's delivered, but you have to master each step before moving on to the next one. And by the time you are at step 10, your life should have already started to change. So um, I'm very confident that um, these steps are helpful between the book and the course. Um, and uh, I, I'm just very proud that it's doing so well. And more importantly, I am happy that I'm getting recognition for doing something that will help change people's lives and get them to where they want to be. Nothing feels better than somebody calling you or seeing you on the road and saying, because of your book, this, or because of your course, that, and it's positive. Nothing feels better than that. And I would trade that for I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's a fantastic feeling. And you've included a lot of, you know, personal experiences and antidotes in this book. A wonderful read, by the way. And Thank you. You know, what, what exactly... And you, you touched on it earlier, but what exactly do you want the readers to really? What exactly do you want the readers to really take away from? Even if it, even if they just read the book and didn't do the course, I want them to take away the fact that life is short. We only get one shot at it. So if we only get one shot, why not live your best life? Mm. Take from life exactly what is there for you. I strongly believe that everyone who has been born who is on this earth you beat out a lot of people to get here (laughs) you know what i mean so the fact that you're here means that you have a purpose my goal is to help people find that purpose live that purpose so they can live their best life and i know that i know that that is like a song like a song it's a but to see people actually doing it living it and and getting the most out of life it 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 is um it is definitely a sight to behold. It is an amazing sight. It is an amazing feeling, and I want everyone to have that. And I do think that if everyone is living their purpose, everyone is being able to fulfill their dreams and walk in the steps that they want to, this this world would be a, a better place. And that is what I want for them, and that is how I want to be remembered in my legacy. What other projects are you working on now? I know you're a busy man, and there's something. There's always something cooking. What's What's yeah. cooking at the moment? So, so I have the book out. I have the course that's out. Um, but I'm also in the process of working on doing speaking tours to talk about both the book and the course. Um, because in addition to giving people access to the book and the course um, online, I also want to be able to have that um, personal interaction as well. Because being being there live and being able to share those stories and answer questions and have people really see and feel the passion, I'm not doing this for the glory or the, the, the fame or anything like that. I am doing it because I genuinely care. I actually, seeing you live your passion makes me happy, <laughs> you know? And I, in the end, just want to be happy. So being out there and seeing and hearing the stories and seeing that people are actually getting to where they want to be 
um, I want to do more of that. So I'm in the process of, of getting that together to, to start touring and, and, you know, speaking to different groups. I've already started, but I want to do kind of bigger, a bigger scale. And I want to, I want to travel a lot. So in the process of looking at Europe now, I'm actually in the UK right now, and uh, the States, obviously, and I've already done some uh, speaking events in uh, the Caribbean. Chris Dawkins, what is your ultimate dream at the end of all this? What is that thing that you most want to accomplish? It's very simple, Christian. I think, um, you know, I have, a, I have a daughter who's three years old right now. I also have a stepson who's seven. But I think um, my biggest dream is for her to just look at me one day when I'm on my, you know, when I'm on my deathbed. Um, I just want her to say, Daddy, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of what you've done. That's it. Awesome. It's very simple. Awesome. Awesome. Now, we have something we call the planet is yours. So you, oh boy. we're both on planet 30, and I'm going to strap on my uh, spacesuit and step out into the atmosphere, and I'm leaving you on planet 30 alone to tell the people whatever you want to tell them. The floor is yours. Um, time is something that people take for granted and every single day you wake up you should see it as an opportunity to get closer to wherever you want to be or if you are already in the place you want to be figure out a way that you can help someone get to where they need to be we only have one shot you need to make the most of it. Don't wait until it's too late. Indeed. No. Wonderful advice. Tell tell us how we can contact you and how we can buy the book and the course. Well, thank you very much for that opportunity. The um, book, Unlock Your Greatness by Chris Dawkins, K-R-I-S Dawkins, D-A-W-K-I-N-S. It is available globally on Amazon. Amazon.uk, Amazon, JPY, Japan, everywhere. So Amazon, once you go to Amazon, Unlock Your Greatness, Chris Dawkins, I'll come up. Um, we're also working on an audiobook for that, so look out for that. That's coming soon. We would have had it already, but because we're in the middle of a pandemic, we can't get into the studio. So um, look out for that. That's coming. Um, the course um, from Fear to Fire, it's www dot from fear the number two fire.com from fear the number two fire.com um and then to get to me all you have to do is email me you can email me at um info at uh chrisdawkins.com info at chrisdawkins.com and your socials you can get me at at from fear to fire.com at chrisdawkins on every platform wonderful Chris Dawkins, thank you for joining us on the planet. My pleasure. It was our pleasure. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. 
Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet 30. Our email address is onplanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com.